like they'll do impromptu. It's, it's, it's similar like CrossFit, right? Like they'll say, all right, today we're going to do a 60 second impromptu discussion or a little monologue on your favorite restaurant. And then, and then you just have, you have like five minutes to come up with a 60 second, you know, uh, review of your favorite restaurant. Uh, and then they'll, and then they'll critique you on like, and that's Toastmasters. Right? That's Toastmasters. Yeah. So it's just like anything, like you get immediate feedback. They, they'll, they'll grade your ums and your likes and stuff like that. <laughs> so I'll basically fail really, really fast. But it's, but it's not about that. It's about, it's about just getting, just getting comfortable. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's, I, I've never done it, but I've, I've always wanted to, when I have more free time later, I'll just. <laughs> Cause uh, we were looking at trying to like capital raise. And that's one of the main things. It's like, Hey, you gotta get better at talking. I've read yeah. like flip the script, uh, p- like pitch anything. Right. I was right. like, but you're reading it. Like, you know how to do it. But yeah. I mean, I still am not good at like, Hey, control the frame can do this. And mm-hmm. I was like, it's not necessarily my comfortable. Mm-hmm. Like, usually I'm good one-on-one, mm-hmm. but like large crowds are really bad. Like, well, then, yeah. And then sometimes it becomes too, um, canned, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you're like, uh, you've watched, I'm sure you've watched like shark tank, you know, those people come in there at shark tank with like a super canned presentation, Yeah. which I mean, yeah, they're trying to impress these billionaires in the room and they need to be sharp, but it's almost like, I mean, it's TV, right? So it's almost too canned. If someone yeah. came in, if someone came in and gave a presentation to me in like my office like that, I'd be like, Hey, what are you doing? Like, let's just talk it through. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you need to have your ducks in a row, but not so can to where it comes off as robotic yeah, so. yeah i feel like i'm i'm pretty good at just having like a conversation like one-on-one because it's mm-hmm. just like uh me talking to like a broker or agent or seller right. it's like i'm just finding out hey what's their needs how do i uh fill mm-hmm. their needs how do we create win-win scenarios yep. but if i'm like talking like let's say i was trying to record like a reel or something and we're live by the way but um and I'm just like talking to it like a screen and I'm by myself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, this is a really strange, like this, this is weird. Yeah. And some people can just straight do that. Like that is my whole thing about talking and like, like presentations in front of people yeah. is because I'm literally just talking to myself and no one reacts. So I have no idea if it's good or bad or like, or am I just straight rambling? And I feel like my mind goes like a hundred miles per hour and yeah. my mouth can't keep up with yeah. my mind. So it just gets, yeah. a, gets a little weird. I've done videos like that where I'm just speaking to the camera and um, yeah, I have like a rough script in my head of what I want to say. Yeah. And then you, you know, it's just acting. Honestly, you just have to act like there's people watching you and, and, nodding and so like, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's, it is, it's different. Uh, a, a good friend of mine, is not great in front of the camera and it's comical because he's great in front of people mm-hmm. and, but you put him in front of a camera and it's, he like freezes up. So, uh, anyway, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of funny. <laughs> it's different. Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely a, a talent. And I honestly, that I feel like that's an extremely desirable trait. I feel like, cause if you can talk in front of people, like communicate, like you can pretty much do anything. Mm-hmm. Cause that's mm-hmm. like, even like now I feel like, Everyone's like in front of a screen oh, yeah. and they do everything like virtually. There's like not like very communication, but mm-hmm. just to kind of like jump it, jump right into it. Yeah. Uh, welcome to uh money buys freedom podcast episode number 45. Today we have our guest, Mark Stevenson, um, CEO now, well now CEO of mm-hmm. hangar law. Mm-hmm. And I really want to get into like asset protection, LLCs, trust, estate planning, stuff that we really don't actually hear about. And even myself personally, like I need, need this episode because mm-hmm. I don't know much about even some of the, a lot of the podcasts I listen to at bigger pockets. It's not really mm-hmm. talked that much, mm-hmm. maybe just cause 
it's hard to get uh, lawyers on the camera. Or, <laughs> I don't know. They're mostly very awkward people. <laughs> so just a, a little bit of backstory. How did you or why did you get into uh, becoming a lawyer? Yeah. Great Watched question. like a TV series and like, man, yeah. this looks cool. Watch suits. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 actually, I think I actually watched Suits after I became an attorney. But uh, <laughs> I like Suits. They did a good job. And then it kind of got redundant after yeah. a while. But um uh, my my life is not as glamorous as uh, as Harvey Specter's for <laughs> sure, but uh, <laughs> I don't have the nice suits that he has, yeah. um, or the the office. He has a, he always had a great office. Um, Do you have Michael Jordan as a client? And don't have Michael Jordan. Don't have any signed basketballs. Yeah, uh, that would be cool. <laughs> I do have a signed um, football though from uh, Barry Sanders, but it's kind of like a it was kind of an indirect uh, thing. Like, it wasn't like yeah, I didn't like meet Barry and he signed mm-hmm. my football. But um, anyway, that's a long story. Um, but yeah, that's my like one little thing to try to be like Harvey Specker, uh, <laughs> the sign football in my office. Um, so, so to back up a little bit, so I've been practicing for about 11 years and, um, the, 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 the short answer to your question, Tyler, is that I didn't really know I wanted to be an attorney until at the end of undergrad. And I went to Old Dominion undergrad. Um, I was actually a chemistry major in undergrad. So I was, you know, pretty good with math and science. That's always been my, spe- uh, my specialty. And, um, did chemistry in undergrad and you're like, Hey, how did you go from chemistry to being an attorney? Honestly, I, I just knew some attorneys from, uh, in that time of my life. Uh, I got to know some of them. They were going to Regent university down the street. And, uh, I just became fascinated with what they were studying in school and, um, and how they could help people, uh, with, with the degree. So that was literally uh, all that I thought about was, Hey, how can I a make a decent living for myself and my family? I was uh, married at the time or getting ready to get married at the time. How can I help people and how can I make an impact and how can I do something that's interesting? Yeah. And at the time, uh, chemistry and science wasn't as interesting to me. Um, and, uh, it was kind of a dead end, uh, uh, field for me to go into as far as a career wise. I just didn't have any options. So then I shifted, yeah, shifted to law, uh, went to Regent. And um, graduated in uh, 2011. So you were originally a chemistry major, chemistry, and yeah. then you switched to, I guess, okay. the law, and then you yeah. went to law school and everything uh, like that. Yep. So let's say you, you did all that stuff. So what was right after that? Did you get right into being? Yes. Yeah, so great question. So, um, so 2011 graduated. That market was not the greatest for attorneys. If you remember anything about 20, 2008 to 2012, um, it was just a tough job market for everybody, especially attorneys. And so I kind of, I had a lot I was of in high school, so I had no care. Okay. <laughs> so I had, I had a few, so it was tough. So, so before that time, and I don't want to say it was always easy to get in a, get a job as, a, as an attorney. I don't think that was the case, but it was easier pre 2008. And so when I was in law school, um, it was, there was a high law school enrollment and everyone was like, I want to go to law school. I want to go to law school. I was just happy to be one of those people. And then after like 2010 and 11, law school admissions actually dropped uh, uh, a lot dramatically and because the jobs dried up. And so it's kind of funny, like ebbs yeah, and flows of education. So anyway, the, the, that's the long answer to your question, but um, I didn't really have too many job opportunities. So, and I, and I was uncomfortable at the time uh, being a solo practitioner going out on my own just because I had a young family, you know, coming out of law school. Um, there was not an immediate paycheck uh, waiting. Yeah. So, um, so I took the Virginia bar. You have to take uh, the summer bar. I took that. I passed that. 
I worked, uh, had a couple of jobs I was working at the time to pay bills and, um, ended up moving up to Michigan, up to Detroit to, to, uh, and this is the end of the story to, <laughs> to work with a colleague of mine up there that had a bankruptcy practice. Oh, wow. And then, um, so he fed me some work up there. I was kind of a solo practitioner, but I had a little bit of work coming in and, uh, and then I kind of just did my own stuff. So mm-hmm. I was just out, I was doing court appointed work for Oakland County up there, which is outside Detroit. Um, I was, uh, I was doing contract work for local firms in the area. I mean, I was just grinding and, um, and so I did that for about two, two and a half years up there and just drummed up my own business, got some from uh, my colleague and, um, started doing short sales up there, uh, real estate work, which is the, the other part of connecting with hanger law and hunter down here was I was doing short sales up there. I mean, we were, people were buying up $5,000, um, short sales in Flint in Detroit. Uh, I mean, it was super hard hit area up there. If you remember anything about that time, um, Detroit and Flint really got hit hard. And, um, and so, yeah, people were short selling properties for a thousand, you know, a couple thousand dollars. You could get a three bed, two bath house up there. And, uh, yeah, so I, so I negotiated the short sale and I got a small fee and then the bank made a couple grand (laughs) and, uh, they were basically just cutting their losses. I mean, Mm. you know, these houses once worth, and, and let's just say, I mean, those houses in Flint, I mean, maybe right now they're worth 120. Yeah. But so it's not like they're half million dollar properties. But at the time, I mean, no one was moving to Flint. You know, yeah. so ev- everyone was leaving Flint. Everyone was leaving Detroit. And so the houses were just essentially abandoned. Mm-hmm. And so the banks were just trying to charge them off and unload them. Um, so that helped pay some of the bills um, as well up there. And I just learned real estate. I learned what it meant to work with a realtor, what it meant to, you know, work with the listing. Um, you know, do the legal work up there, do the title curative work. I mean, a lot of these had title issues, you know, how do, how do we deal with those in a short sale situation? Um, so yeah, that was a solo practitioner up in, uh, outside Detroit, uh, for a few years and then moved back down in, in 2015. So I know like for like real estate CPAs, like they, everyone's got like a specialty and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, when you were in college, did you have to like have a specialty in law or is like, Hey, I want to go be a crime attorney. I want to go be a yeah. business attorney. Do you have like a specialty? Like so, you're... so thankfully, so a couple different things with that. Um, in for the, for the U S in this country, you, uh, to get, to go to law school, you just have to have a, um, undergrad degree. So any type of undergrad, BS, BA, mm-hmm. uh, from an accredited university, and you have to take the uh, the law school admissions test of the LSAT, and obviously have the grades and the credentials to get in. So you don't have to have a, a pre-law specialty. You don't have to have anything like that. And, and same with medical school too. Uh, you know, a lot of people think medical school you have to have a biology degree or anything like that. I mean, you can have a you can have an English degree and get into medical medical school. So similar to yeah. to law. So. Um, so I know there, there are pro, there are pre-law programs and things like that. That's fine. And I think that does help people, but honestly, law schools are kind of looking for diversity. They're kind of looking for people with an engineering degree or science degree or, or some other degree. Cause most people that go to law school have an English degree or political science or something yeah. like that, which is <laughs> fine, yeah. Yeah, which is fine. There's nothing bad or uh, wrong with that. So, um, so no to, to that question. Um, and in, in, in Virginia, we can't technically specialize in, in a particular practice area. In, in the technical sense of the term. Yeah. So I cannot say on my website, you know, if you go to hangerlaw.com slash firm, I can't say in my bio that I specialize in 
real estate or whatever. It's just the oh, it's just the Virginia thing. Yeah. Um, because we don't have certifications or special credentials for that. So um, really, if I wanted to go, you know, represent someone in a traffic matter tomorrow, I can I can do that. If I want to go, you know, uh, litigate a, a, a contract, a breach of contract, I can do that tomorrow. If I wanted to, you know, draft a contract for a real estate deal, I can do that. So there are some competencies that we have to have of like, hey, I'm not going to take a, a, a felony murder case tomorrow because I've never done that. Yeah. So legally, I could. Yeah. <laughs> my my law license gives me the the ability yeah. to do that, mm-hmm. but my knowledge, right? right I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Um. And so so there's uh the professional ethics standards that we have as attorneys. We, we kind of dictate to ourselves whether we have the competencies to do that or not. Um, and so that's really all we have. Now, there are special license or special certifications you can get for, um, obviously, tax. Tax yeah. is one. And then um, patent law as well through the um, federal patent office, the PTO. Oh, okay. So. So you mentioned short sales. What did you exactly do for the the short sales? I know like a short sale, like the bank's basically cutting its losses. Mm-hmm. Can you explain like that process from like a, a legal aspect and what you dealt with over there? Uh, yeah, exactly. So the so short the definition of a short sale is when the um the the borrower the homeowner is unable to repay the loan in full based on the the sale price being low or them not having the assets to cover that difference. Right. And in a situation today, a lot of people have equity. So if, if even if someone's close on on selling their home and the true value of the home and what they owe on the home, then uh, a lot of times people can come up with a grand or two grand to, to cover that difference in yeah. the cash to close or people are making money anyway. So it's it's uh, and they have equity. So but back in in those times, 20, uh, 20 2008 and after, um, you know, I mean, just pick a random home in Chesapeake that was maybe worth three fifty now or four hundred. Well, maybe back then it was selling for two hundred or two twenty five. Yeah. Well, if their mortgage was for two fifty and they were listing it and selling it for two hundred, there's a shortfall delta there of a you know fifty fifty grand um, plus fees, costs, and things like that. So what we would do is we'd petition the lender. Let's say it's uh, Wells Fargo. You know, Wells Fargo had a bunch. Um, we'd petition the lender. We'd fill out their their um, paperwork, we'd work with the, the seller. Uh, so we'd represent the seller in the situation. So typically a realtor would say, hey, hey, Mark, hey, Hanger Law, I have this situation. Can you help out, you know, John Doe, the seller? Uh, he's most likely going to be short on his, on his uh, payoff. So um, so we fill out the short sale paperwork, negotiate with them. We get them all the numbers. I mean, we're going back and forth with Wells Fargo, typically a three to four to five month process. So it's not something uh, quick and easy, unfortunately. And we'd... Um, Wells Fargo would do their due diligence. They had a checklist they had to follow because um, they were getting government subsidies and various things. I don't know all the intricacies yeah. of all that stuff. That was way above my head and my pay grade. But they had uh, Wells Fargo and all the banks had their their checklists of what they had to do before they signed off on it. And so if someone was coming in and lowballing it and saying, "Hey, I want to pay a hundred grand for this house that's probably worth about you know two hundred two twenty five." Wells Fargo was like going to approve that. So they did a, an appraisal as well and, uh, or Wells Fargo would do their appraisal and they'd say, Hey, we think, we think the true value is around 210, 215. Yeah. And so we negotiate with them and say, well, you know, the comps are showing is really worth like 195, 200, go back and forth. All that to say is once we could agree on a price and they they would call it basically their net of what they wanted back after everything was, um, basically seller proceeds. Once everything was, was, uh, paid, then, um, then they would approve it 
and then we could close and it was just a regular closing after that. So, so what happens, like I've seen a, even like a couple of short sales that have been on the market for a long time. Do, would you like go back to the bank and say, hey, this one's sitting for like forever. Um, yeah. Uh, we got to do something here. And you say like, hey, we need to cut it lower. Like, Yeah. So the um, it drives realtors nuts because sometimes there's no rhyme or reason. Yeah. <laughs> so we'd have situations where exactly what you're talking about. Uh, you know, we'd have pretty good offers coming in and the realtors would tell me left and right, this house is worth no more than 200 and it just sits on the market and sits on the market. And, um, we would go back and sometimes, yeah, we'd go back and petition to the bank. Um, the other problem is like, if it was a VA borrower, the, the VA uh, appraisals are, are, I think they're still good for six months. So if the, if Wells Fargo, uh, did an appraisal, you know, on January 1st, I mean, that appraisal stuck on that property for six months. And so that was part of the the reason FHA and conventionals are different. I think FHA is 120 days. Conventionals are maybe 90 days. Anyway, someone can maybe correct me if I'm wrong on that, but, uh, (laughs) the, um, it was something to that nature. So, uh, to that effect. So, um, that was one reason the appraisals just stuck and we could contest the appraisal and all that. And most of the time we were not successful with that. I'm sure there are instances I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, so that was one, but yeah, other times, uh, the, the appraisal just came in too high and, and they just would not budge from that. And so, um, the, the, the banks would have, they would do their actuarial tables and have their numbers of like, no, we need the net X amount of dollars from this house. And if we don't get it, it's going to foreclosure. And then a lot of times it would go to foreclosure and then they would get less. Then what? Yeah. So then the, the foreclosing attorneys are getting paid, which is good for them, I guess. But, um, yeah, the, the bank teaches the seller a lesson, I guess. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, so all that to say is it, it was super frustrating. Many deals were, were like that. And, uh, and realtors would come to us and I'm like, look, I, we're doing the best we can. Like, yes, it's crazy. It doesn't make sense. A lot of the deals did not make sense. Um, but that was what we had to work with. So <laughs> I wonder if the, um, when it goes to foreclosure, I wonder if they're guaranteed by like the U S government to get yeah. a certain amount of money. Yeah, it, it was exactly. So if it foreclosed, um, yeah, if it foreclosed, they got some percentage of their yeah. money back. Exactly. So that makes sense. That was the stuff that was above our heads that we, we, I didn't see what numbers the banks were looking at. You know, we had a, we had a dimly lit like view of what was going on. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, there, but there were deals to be had, uh, um, Tyler, there were deals to be had and the, and the people that were able to buy short sales at the time, got some deals and, um, or if they went to foreclosure, they could potentially get deals at that point. Okay. Um, so, but a, a lot of those people, the investors were trying to get in early, right? Not let it go, go to foreclosure. So you just got, you were in short sales for a while and then you jumped into what was uh, the next thing you're talking about? So, um, yeah. So, so when I was doing short sales, uh, in Michigan, I connected with Hunter, the owner of, of our firm, Hunter Hanger. Well, he and I went to law school together. So he was actually negotiating short sales down here in Hampton Rose. I was negotiating up in Michigan. So we just kind of kept in touch and shared stories and like, Hey, what, you know, let's talk about this situation, this situation, just like anyone does with, you know, if they have someone that's in the same field. And, um, he, uh, he started growing his, his full practice and doing more real estate work because short sales, I mean, we knew they weren't, weren't going to go on forever. I mean, we're still negotiating a few right now, but not like we were back in 2015 between 2015 and 2018. I mean, we were, that was a huge part of our practice just because they were, I mean, they were flow. Yeah. It was just flowing in, especially in this area. So, excuse me. So, um, 
so I connected with him and joined the firm in 2015. And then we grew our short sale practice, but also just the rest of our real estate practice. So obviously residential closings, title work. Um, we do a lot of commercial work now, um, land development. I mean, anything that touches the land we deal with. We represent a lot of property managers now, do landlord tenant work. And then now we're just full practice. So anything you could think of, family law, litigation, traffic, DUI, things like that. So, okay. Yeah. So that, so my focus was real estate coming into the firm and then also wills and trusts, uh, and, and probate work. Since you're, uh, like, seems like your specialty is more real estate related work. Yeah. So how would you advise, like, someone to protect their assets? So let's say, like, mm-hmm. they have one investment property. Is it worth getting an LLC for that one? Or is it like, hey, after you get to a certain point, legal wise, mm-hmm. what's the best, like, avenue to go to? securing and safeguarding yeah. someone's assets. Yeah. So, so even, so with one property, hundred percent, I recommend an LLC. So the reason for that is, is uh, when you think of LLCs, it is a business, you, you know, uh, and you can have, you can have an LLC that just holds property, uh, you know, just like a holding company, um, but it's liability protection. So uh, if you do not have an LLC set up and you have one rental property or say you're flipping a property and you're doing everything through your personal name, through Mark Stevenson, through Tyler Wynn, through whatever, then if there's any type of um, litigation that surrounds that, so maybe it's a slip and fall instance, maybe it's a contractor that gets hurt on the property, maybe it's a, a tenant that that uh, gets hurt, maybe there's a house fire, whatever, then, um, yeah, you should have insurance, right? I mean, insurance would be the first protection, yeah. uh, property and casualty. But then after that, after property and casualty, then, you know, they're going to go after you individually. They're going to pursue you individually. So let's say it's a, I don't know, it's a $2 million claim. Your insurance coverage is only a million. They're going to pursue you uh, or their attorney is going to pursue you personally for that difference, right? Well, if you don't so, have it, if you, if, if, they, if you, you guys dead. If you don't have insurance, if you don't have, any, have anything, I mean, they could pursue the home. They could, I mean, they could pursue anything that you have. Yeah. So oh. I'm saying, let's say like, for instance, someone has one rental property, yeah. uh, they have a $1 million um, policy on it. The person sues for, let's say $2 million sure. and they have a $1 million difference, but they don't have, like you can sell everything you want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got a million dollars. Yeah. So they could get to take ju- my debt. Right. But- <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> they could get a judgment lien. Yeah. Um, a judgment lien means it's a, it's a, it's an actual lien that they'd file with the, let's say we live in Chesapeake. They'd file it with the, the clerk's office, circuit court in Chesapeake. And, um, if you're, uh, they could attach it to your home. So if you own a home in Chesapeake, they could attach it to your home. So when you went to sell the property, you'd have to pay a certain amount of debt, similar to like a credit card judgment or something like that. Um, oh, they, so that link could just stay there. Yeah, until... just stay there essentially forever. There's some limitations on that. You have to renew it and things like that. But just, you know, they're 10 to 20 year liens. Do you have to like pay per month and stuff like that? So they could potentially garnish wages. Yeah, there could be wage, wage. garnishments. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so Virginia allows wage garnishments. That's not my expertise, but I know they are possible. And it's not, it's not like it's easy to get a wage garnishment. You do have to go through certain. Um, hoops, you have to jump through certain hoops and, and get through red tape, but no, that's, it's a hundred percent valid in, in Virginia to, to do wage garnishments on a debt. Um, so it, it could be, and there's, there's ratios there of like, you know, they're not going to take all the money out of your checking account, but if you're making, let's say you make a thousand dollars a week, you know, there's a percentage there of after your debt to income based on your debt to income ratio and, and other things to where so you're they basically could, paying child support to, to someone they could, yeah, they could take you know, hundred dollars a week or Jeez. whatever. So that's, I mean, that's kind of an extreme situation. So it goes to your point, Tyler, of an LLC can protect you from a lot of that. So um, even if you have your property, one property and an LLC, you know, um, 
uh, T TW investments, LLC, whatever, um, then they could only pursue that LLC uh, and any assets you have in the LLC. So if you just have that one property and no other, you know, you don't, you don't have a million dollars sitting in your LLC checking account, then they absolutely cannot come after your, um, your personal assets at that point. So would you tell someone like each house or investment property you get an LLC, 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 or say like, Hey, let's say one LLC, you can get like four in there. And- yeah. That's what I'd recommend. Yeah. Three, three to five properties per LLC, because the, the likelihood that you're going to have an issue is, is pretty minimum. I mean, let's be real. Uh, hopefully, uh, if you do things right and, and you're taking care uh, of your people tennis. are getting a little weird <laughs> now, so and everyone wants to see, so I feel like it's it's going to come way more common. Yeah, so, so I would I would say personally say three to five. I've heard Dave Dave Ramsey, you know, I'm sure you've heard of him. I've heard him say around the same thing for a couple of different reasons. One, um, it's extra tax work to have multiple LLCs. Yeah. So um, so yeah, you can increase your your liability protection to have each house in an LLC. Nothing wrong with it, but it's extra admin, it's extra tax work. If you want to pay your your, your CPA or if you want to do it yourself, that's fine. Uh, extra fees with the with the state um, registration fees for the LLC, things like that. And then you need to keep your books separate too. So you know, if you have this house and this LLC, all of your books and everything need to align properly with that LLC. If you have this one, same thing. So different. You're, so you're dealing with different bank accounts, registration fees tax fees at the or taxes at the end of the year, um, filing fees, things like that. Whereas if you have three to five houses in one LLC, just a little cleaner and easier with the books. Um, but nothing wrong with, with, uh, either way. Huh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So how would someone, let's say they're listening to this, like, oh crap, I got a, uh, oh, I got set up an LLC. How yeah. would someone go about setting up an LLC if they have no idea what they're doing? Sure. Yeah. So the, the super basic way, I mean, is the LLCs are simple to set up with the state of Virginia, which is great. So you pay, I think it's a hundred dollar registration fee and um, you basically answer a couple questions and you're done. The problem is you do need some documents. You do need operating agreement. You do need uh, a few other things that I would recommend, especially if you're doing business on a day-to-day basis with it. So um, our firm's happy to help set that up, you know, pitch for us uh, pretty modest cost to get that set up. Uh, based on your situation, but the the general fee just to go and 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 pay for an LLC today is I think around a hundred bucks with the city or with okay. the with the state. Because yeah. I've I've set a couple of LLCs through Hanger Law, and it was like okay, there's they have all the documents and everything like that. They have like a registered agent, mm-hmm. and then you have to have a place of business. That's um, right. Yep. So my one question to that is, let's say you you have to pay a certain amount a month. Who do you pay mm-hmm. every? every, every mm-hmm. year and stuff like that. Like yeah. Great. Someone so had has no idea what, what that is. Or absolutely. Anything. Yeah. So, so we have, our firm has a, a few different, um, tiers. I, I'll, I'll call it of the, what level of representation you'd want. So the super basic level, you're basically just paying us to be a registered agent. And, and that means a registered agent is someone that receives any legal notices. Um, so if, if someone is uh, like a mechanics lien or someone's trying to sue you, then they have to send notice to the registered agent. So we have offices in, in Newport News and Virginia uh, Beach. So they would send a notice to us. We'd be responsible as your registered agent to let you know of the lawsuit and um, kind of let you know next steps. We wouldn't necessarily advise you on what to do. That'd be a separate discussion. But we would basically say, hey, Tyler, I just got this notice in for XLLC. Um, you know, it's a pending lawsuit or whatever. So that, that's kind of the main goal of a uh, registered agent. And then uh, you'd have our fee, several hundred bucks. And then the um, 
the re-registration fee with the SEC, Virginia SEC, which is around 50, I think. Uh, so it's, it's pretty, again, pretty minimum uh, cost here for, a, for an LLC in Virginia. So let's say they got all their paperwork and everything like that. How do they even file? Do, is there like a Western website? They get all electronic. A, all yep. electronic. Yep. You just go through a website. Mm-hmm. Hey, do this. Here's mm-hmm. your EIN number. Yep. Um, so EIN is a little separate. Uh, but yeah, just with the, with the state, it's all electronic on the SEC website, um, State Corporation Commission. And it's pretty user-friendly now, thankfully. Um, they do have some hiccups every so often. Um, and then the EIN would be separate through the IRS website. Um, to, if you have a single, a single member LLC, that would just be you owning an LLC by yourself. Um, you can use your social security number. Um, but you can also file a, for EIN with the IRS website and they ask you questions. I think that's all online as well, which okay. is pretty straightforward. So let's say you don't have an LLC. If, let's say there's two people on that property and let's say one person gets personally sued. Mm-hmm. Could they go after that property if there's two individuals on that house? Um, cause I always heard that can kind of like uh, protect you because it's two technically people. Yeah. How, how would they, uh, so that's like a title question. How, how would they be owning title together? So let's say like I got in the car, I'll say I hit someone with a car and they're okay. trying to sue me. Mm-hmm. They're trying to sue, uh, garnish wages, go after all your assets and you don't have an LLC, but you bought, um, property with like your wife or your, um, brother-in-law okay. or something like right. that. And mm-hmm. how would is that is your brother-in-law gonna get screwed too? Or? So, um, good question. So, in Virginia, there are so if it's a joint property, um, as a married couple, there are um, there are debt protections with that. There are protection liability protections with that. With um, if it was your brother-in-law, that's actually a great question. The if it's a it would be a joint tenancy at that point. Yeah, I don't think. You put me on a spot. Uh, I'm not a litigation <laughs> expert. I, I don't think they could go. Over, uh, they could try to attack any joint jointly held properties. It would only be if you held it as a as a tenant in common or a, yeah. a TIC. Um, there's a, definitely a special protection with the spousal um, a spousal unity in Virginia. So yeah, joint tenancy should be free from that. Um, and and that's where the LLC comes in too. You know, if you're if you're, I'll kind of push it back to that. If you're if you're owning a home with your brother-in-law or a, some other friend, just put it under an LLC umbrella, yeah. and that kind of solves that problem. So, but as like a husband and wife, you're still be liable because y'all are married, or like no, there's a protection there. There's a protection with the like I said, as long as it's held in joint tenancy, yeah, with the spouse. Oh, okay, yeah. so you're actually it's uh, more beneficial to put your husband and wife on mm-hmm. there. I did know mm-hmm. that part because I was like, mm-hmm. uh, I was like, regardless if. Uh, like I bought the house or my wife bought the house. We're going to go there together because yeah. I knew there was more protection if you didn't have LLC. Yeah, joint tenancy there. So um, that's the key term. And and if any any attorney that drafts deeds in the area is going to to hopefully make sure that's correct because uh, that's super important. Um, you can also I've heard other people with high net worth or with uh, you know maybe they're in the construction business or whatever they'll put everything in their wife's name or in their spouse's name. I'm assuming it's a, a male, right? But it put everything titled in their spouse's name, which is kind of funny, uh, for the same reason. Um, yeah. just, just so they don't have any ownership in the property. So let's say they have a million dollar personal residence or whatever. Um, they would just put everything in their wife's name. Uh, again, I'm making assumptions here, but then that this also extra protection. Um, do I think that's necessary? Probably not. I, honestly, I would go the insurance route of getting a, um, 
and I'm not an insurance expert, but getting an umbrella policy yeah, and, you know, get that through your PNC rep. And, um, to me, that's a, a lot cheaper. I mean, I pay whatever, let's say 50 bucks a month for an extra couple million. Yeah, Cause we have an umbrella policy and yeah, it's definitely it's, worth it. I think it was like, it's like, you're right. It was like 50 bucks a month. Or something. Yeah. hundred percent worth it. So, so that com- combined with the LLC protection is, is generally all people need. So you mentioned a couple minutes ago, and I really want to touch that. You're talking about like keeping everything separate in your LLC. Mm-hmm. Isn't if you uh, happen to commingle even a couple of times mm-hmm. that it like voids the um, LLC and your personal assets, they like, oh, you actually commingled. So now they can tack you from your personal to your LLC. Yeah. So, so great question. That's um, the technical term and it's a fun law school term, uh, cor- uh, piercing the corporate veil. Yeah. So, um, Generally, it's reserved for executives and and large corporations because that's where the money is. In an LLC, it is possible though, and and my firm's actually um, uh, pursued folks on that uh, cause of action is what we call it. So yes, if there's a scenario where you're commingling funds again, you're not keeping your accounting straight. You know, you you're you're using funds from your personal checking to pay for this, and it's just not clean. Then, yeah. then a judge, and, and it kind of makes sense, right? A judge would say, well, you're not really operating this business as a separate entity. You're kind of just, everything's just going through your personal checking account. Yeah. So there, there could be scenarios to where, yeah, a judge would say, yeah, we're going to pierce the corporate veil. That's the term. And, and essentially hold the individual liable for the debts or for the actions of the company. So, so what happens like for real estate aspect? Okay. Let's say all your personal is in this bank and I want to go set up my uh, LLC in this specific bank, keep mm-hmm. everything separate. What if you want to invest your personal money into an investment property? How would that work? Cause technically you're taking uh, personal money, investing in the mm-hmm. LLC. How does that part work without actually commingling? Yeah, it? that's fine. That, that would be, that, I mean, and that happens all the time, right? That, I mean, that's, so someone has, you know, let's say someone has a day job and they're trying to put some of their, their money in from their earnings or savings into their company. That's totally fine. The problem, as long as you keep your books accurate and say, hey, this is a personal investment. Um, the problem is when you just kind of disregard the LLC bank account and you're not, and you're just not keeping books. You're straight. Like moving them back. Yeah, you're just <laughs> moving funds around like and being sloppy with things. Um, that's And there's other formalities that you would need to follow. Um, let's say uh, we were kind of talking about this, I think earlier before you started recording, but let's say you don't renew your LLC. So then you did have your LLC, but then for six to 12 months, you're operating without an LLC. Um, even though it's pretty easy to renew. So there are other factors like that. It's not just being sloppy with your money, although that's part of it. There are other, it's following the other formalities of, or let's say, let's say, um, you know, you bought this one property through your LLC, but your other two properties with your individual name. And then again, you're, so then you have three properties and then you're, you know, oh, this, this house needs repairs. I'm going to take money from my LLC to pay for this other, the other repairs, but that's, the house is not in the LLC. You can see how quickly it become just like, yeah, why even have an LLC if you're just going to be using all of your money? So, but to your, to your initial question, that's hundred percent okay to invest money into your LLC. Again, you just want to keep accurate uh, records there. Cause the LLC is basically a, like a pass through entity. That's right. Couldn't you still just take your earnings from your, your LLC and bring it right straight to your uh, mm-hmm. personal because yeah. it's just a pass through tax right. wise. Tax wise. Yeah. Tax, tax wise. Exactly. So, but there's still, even if you're taking and, and claiming that income as individual income, hundred percent fine tax wise. 
the problem is again with the other formalities of just keeping your your books accurate when you have a repair on the home do you pay for it out of your llc you know um do you have all the insurances in your LLC? Do you have a business insurance policy or is, is a homeowner's insurance in your individual name or not? You know, so there's a lot of super, super basic things you can do to, to protect yourself. Are you doing a, an annual like meeting with under the operating agreement? Just saying, Hey, everything's, everything's kosher in the LLC for lack of a better term. I'm following the formalities. You know, I have a registered agent. I'm paying the dues I'm supposed to pay. Um, you know, my insurances are, are straight, the titles proper in the deed. Um, yeah, it just, again, little, little basic things like that will go a long way. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. So I've heard of people actually buying LLCs that have been like inactive or a certain amount of times and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I know my always fear is like worst case scenario with everything. So my worst case scenario <laughs> is my wife forgets to pay the uh, LLC fee or something like that. And we like, like you lo- you lose and someone buys it from under. That's like my deep fear. Cause I'm it on your wife. Huh? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but, um, what, like, can that actually happen? And how, what's, how, what's the time period on some, if something like that? Could yeah. That's, that's a kind of a loaded question. So I guess technically, yes, it, you wouldn't necessarily buy the LLC, but you can, and I don't know the SEC rules with this. Um, Tyler, you're, you're throwing me off guard for a second, but, um, <laughs> throw, throw me a curveball, but, there, there is a scenario where someone can go inactive for a certain amount of time. And then, yeah, you can kind of just like take the name um, or a similar name perhaps. But there are, you know, if you go to the SEC right now and try to, you can search inactive names. Um, there's also trade, state trademarking and yeah. stuff too. Federal, there's federal trademarks and there's state trademarks. So, yeah, perhaps you could um, maybe take over a name after a certain amount of time. Again, I don't know the rules on that. Um, or you could create a very, very similar name. Uh, and register that name and not interfere with the trademarks because they're no longer doing business. So as far as like, you know, scooping up or kind of using your language, buying a, a name, I, yeah. I, I'm not aware of the intricacies of that, but I, I do believe after a certain amount of time, you can um, use that name okay. that's inactive. Okay. Yeah. One thing you also mentioned, you mentioned trademarking. Um, mm-hmm. So is that basically like, someone you getting your LLC in a certain name and someone using that name mm-hmm. for people who are like have no idea what that stuff is. What is yeah. trademarking in general? So, so trademarking in general is, is claiming ownership rights of that brand, what's called a brand. Um, you can do, there's various trademarks you can have. Uh, and I'm going to speak mostly with like federal trademark wise, cause that's more of my experience, but you can also get state trademarks. And I think they work very similarly. But in a federal trademark, you can trademark just the name. So let's just say I want to trademark a phrase or a name, you know, the name of your LLC, whatever. Um, or you can trademark a, a a logo or something like that. You know, say say your logo is is something unique, like a Nike swoosh or something like that. Uh, obviously, that's trademark. Um, the Apple logo, any logo you pretty much see out and about in, in the world today is trademark. But you can also trademark the name of something just by itself in like plain text. Uh, and so that'd be like a, what we call plain, um, what do they call it? Plain word mark logo or something like that. Um, so I, I definitely think that's valuable, especially if you're doing business more like in a public, uh, uh, sphere. If you're kind of like a holding company, just holding a few properties, probably not as, um, not as valuable or, or necessary, but if you're doing something to where, you know, like a brand, like a realtor brand or a brokerage or something to where you're, um, 
you're out there in the public view more and people are seeing your name and seeing your brand, yeah, it's probably worth getting a trademark, at least a plain text trademark, if not a logo. So like for me, for instance, like I'm known online for like the winning, winning team with a mm. Y or like, like this podcast money buys, money buys freedom. So let's say that, um, like I have that, I've been doing it for years and someone decides they want to like trademark those mm. names and everything yeah. like that. How does that work? Like, yeah. even if you started years ago yeah. and that's the person is say, Oh, we just trademarked that name. And like, how yeah. does that process work? Yeah. You're getting into the weeds of, of trademark law, but, um, they're, they're anything with the law, there are certain factors, right? So there's gray areas, but they would, they would look to, um, if you filed a trademark, they would look to the, the file date. They would look to, um, a, what they call a first in use time. So nowadays with the internet, I mean, it's pretty easy to see when you started your podcast and when, you know, your first show or whatever. So that could be a way to, to disprove and, and show that, um, Hey, I was using winning team network before this other person. Um, so first in use and, and first to file, those are two factors that they use. Um, and then also they look at uh, geographic location. So if you're doing you know, in money bus freedom, I mean, the, the, the thing with the internet now is complicated, right? Cause you have, you can do, be doing business anywhere, but if yeah. you're a local, if you're a local Chesapeake or Virginia beach company and you're just doing business in Virginia beach or Chesapeake, um, and there's a business in California that has a very, very similar name, and th but they're only doing business in California or Los Angeles specific, then th there, th um, there won't be conflicts there, generally speaking. Yeah. Um, there are mostly conflicts with more of the nationwide companies uh, or some of the online type things where there's, there's bleed over. Or if it's a different, 100% um, different uh, type of business. Mm -hmm. So let's say you're doing real estate let's say this other person is a, is a, is a baker, you know, they're selling like baked goods or something. Um, there could be, um, there could be a, a agreement there to where there's not a conflict of, Hey, yeah, I'm doing, I'm talking about financial stuff over here. You're talking about, you're doing a bakery over here in California. So, you know, there, there could be ways to where there's no conflict there, no trademark infringement. Okay. Well, let's yeah. say for instance, someone like, cause you can find little, designs on the internet they want to create their logo that's right they create their logo mm -hmm. put it on their stuff and they have no no idea that someone trademarked mm. what's the process that person is like oh gotcha i'm gonna see you or like <laughs> how does that all process work yeah so typically it's what we call a demand letter in the legal world it's, it's kind of a notice like hey we've noticed you using a similar mark or similar name to us you know we want to ask you to stop first and foremost and, and it's a very legal uh um uh, kind of a demanding way sometimes or a, a threatening way almost. And, um, and then after that, yeah, it'd be a, it'd be a trademark infringement lawsuit at that point. But even yeah. if that, let's say that person used that brand and sold a bunch of like apparel or something and made tons of money, mm -hmm. is that person like, ah, like, Hey, I, you need all that money you that's actually owed to me. Like, yeah. I, there could be damages there. Huh? So with, with any lawsuit in any, any sphere, any realm, you have to show or prove up damages. So damages could be, hey, my leg is broken from the car accident, and I have I have repairs to my leg. I have injury, I have surgeries, and all these things. Or it could be monetary, of just purely monetary. Like, hey, you took my trademark, you use my name to sell all these all these items or do this podcast and make all these ad dollars, and uh, you know I'm gonna figure out how much you made off that, and I'm gonna sue you and try to get my share. So. Um, you have to prove up some type of damages yeah. to, to get it to court basically. Yeah. Oh, I gotcha. yeah. And then a lot of times, I mean, they settle and various things like that, but 
if you don't have any damages, you're just like, no, I know you, you're stealing my name. I don't really know how much money you're making off of it. I mean, you have to figure out some type of number. Or if you're losing money every week, I was like, hey, you're welcome to it. Like, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you want my debts? I got you. But um, yeah. kind of hit into a more popular uh, subject. Everyone wants to like know, hey, how do I plan? Like, let's say you have, let's say a couple of years from now, or you like the people that are about to retire. They have tons of money and assets. What's the best way to like a state plan? Is it, like mm-hmm. a trust or like, because I'm like a worst case scenario uh, type of person. And for even for our situation, it's like, okay, if something happened to us, like for our daughter, like mm-hmm. how do you plan where obviously she's two, she's not going to be able to take care of any of this right, stuff. Right, right. So how did, how do you really like plan your assets around mm-hmm. that? It's like a wheel is best in this scenario. Trust the best in this scenario. Your trust and your LLC, like mm-hmm. there's probably all mm-hmm. kinds of different ways, but I'm curious to like, yeah. Yeah, excuse me. Great question. So, um, you know, you've asked a lot of good questions. I'll stop saying great question. They're, they're, they're all great questions. Um, so we talked about the LLCs mostly for liability protection. However, LLCs are a, a way of what we call succession planning too. So you're kind of talking about asset protection and succession planning. And so a lot of people kind of think that LLCs and trusts are similar and they do, they can, um, they can operate in a similar way, but I typically view LLCs as like a business and liability protection and then trust as the succession planning of, Hey, what's going to happen? Like you said, if we pass away, we have, you know, all these assets, maybe we have some debt too, but we have these assets and I have a, a, a minor child that can't run my business, can't handle rental properties. I don't want her to walk into, you know, $3 million of assets or whatever. So, um, First goal, definitely get life insurance policy in place. I recommend everybody doing that because uh, that's the first, you know, even if you have debts um, and, and you have some other assets, maybe rental properties, maybe liquid assets, that life insurance policy, I mean, it's peanuts. I should sell life insurance because I, I believe in it, but um, get that life insurance policy in place first and foremost or multiple. Uh, and then um, I do love trust and, and Sean Riley's a partner at our firm. He does a lot of the high level estate planning. Um, trusts are very flexible. And for a relatively modest cost to get them set up, they're, they're very flexible. And all the trust is, uh, Tyler, is, it's similar to, to, like a, to a company or to an LLC, but it, it specifically tells the trustee, whoever's in charge of the money, what to do with the money upon uh, your passing. So I know it's kind of morbid to talk about this, but it's, it's important yeah. because if I have minor children as well, like, like you do, and, and so, yeah, they could walk into quite a, a large chunk of money. Uh, if, if my wife and I were to pass away based on life insurance. And I've always heard that if you don't, like, if you say you really don't like your family, don't yeah. set up a will, don't set up a trust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a disaster. Yeah, that's a, that's a, <laughs> a, a, a harsh way to put it, but that's, it's true. Um, so, yeah, the best thing you can do for your family is to leave them, A, leave a legacy for yourself, but to leave them in a good situation. Um, I've dealt with a, a loved one passing away. My father mm-hmm. passed away about 10 years ago. Thankfully, he had his ducks in a row. And it made it a lot easier to to deal with that side of it because, you know, people grieve and you're dealing with this. And God forbid, like, you know, God forbid, like someone has their two parents pass away. But, I mean, life happens. And, yeah, um, you know, generally, right, one parent will pass away at a time. But it, it does help to um, – and Virginia law is very, very favorable to probate situations and to trust and will situations. But it makes it a lot easier when people have their ducks in a row. Um, and again, it's a pretty modest cost up front to do that. And you don't really have to change them and, 
mess with them too much. It's not like an LLC where you kind of need to manage it on a regular basis. Trusts are kind of there. You get it set up and you don't really have to change it unless some life event happens or, or what it, maybe you have another kid or maybe you buy some more properties or, you know, maybe you start another business and it's making money. Um, so yeah, trust is the best way for succession planning. You can also do succession planning in an LLC. So let me just talk about that for a second. So I've had scenarios in, in my practice where an individual, let's just say he had, I don't know, two or three rental properties and he passed away. Well, in his LLC documents, it doesn't talk about anything regarding who owns those homes <laughs> after, after he passed away. So per Virginia law, it actually went to his um, next of kin, which is were his two daughters. So his two daughters. It's we, good that Virginia does it at least because I know it could be a little it could, it could have been a lot, a lot more messy. We were able to work it all out. But his two daughters basically became um, through the LLC became the co-owner or co-managers of the LLC after he passed away. So we had to do all this rigmarole and all this paperwork. Well, mean, meanwhile, this is, it always happens while the deal is trying to close, right? So we have, <laughs> we have the realtor that didn't know what was going on. We had the buyers that were just like waiting, like, Hey, why is this taking so long? And it was because, well, the, the seller that owned the LLC is kind of left a mess and we were there trying to pick it up and, and it all worked out eventually, but it took a lot longer than it should have. And we had to track down his daughters and get them to cooperate. And they, thankfully they were co uh, cooperative because they were coming into, you know, selling um, some assets, selling some real estate. So there was this extra stuff we had to do. Whereas super simple on an LLC in the operating agreement, you can list out the successors. You can list out, Hey, who's going to be the, the manager after I pass, you know, it can be anybody. It can be your brother, your sister, whoever it could be a friend, but then someone that could sign off on all the, the paperwork to sell the property okay. uh, or maybe it's a rental and you, and, and you want to keep the properties in your, um, in your estate for a long time. Maybe it's a cash cow. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a big commercial building and yeah. you know making a ton of money. And it's like, no, I want to pass this down to my children. Well, yeah, you got to set it up properly in the LLC and or the trust to make sure that money stays in the family and it's you know paying out to your, your children and grandchildren. Okay. So you can do that for LLCs and everything like that. Um, when does a trust and a will, cause I already heard will is like, like your cars and stuff like that. It's like mm -hmm. stuff you just going to sell and this kind of stuff like that. And trust is like for like income producing assets, maybe, um, like stocks and stuff like that. Like that's probably the best for, uh, avenue for that. When is best for a will? When's best for a trust? You mentioned LLCs. Yeah. The, the trust own the LLCs and like how, what's the best way to get that straight? So my short answer is everyone should have a will at a minimum. The only time I would say even a will might not be necessary is maybe an individual that maybe a college student that just doesn't have anything and they're just a student. Maybe they have a part-time job and God forbid they pass away they don't have anything. And so like a will is not even necessary in those situations. Um, again, that's a very, very limited circumstance. Um, any, any married couple, I would say should have a will up at the minimum. If they have children, I recommend a trust with children because of the, again, if any married couple hopefully has some type of life insurance policy, even if it's a few hundred grand, um, you, you, what you do is you set the, uh, Everyone's probably heard of, you know, successor beneficiary to a, to a life insurance policy of a primary and a successor. Well, you, uh, and the life insurance policy, and again, this is kind of getting to the weeds of insurance, but it's super important. 
you name your spouse as a, if you're married, you name your spouse as a primary beneficiary, and then you name the trust as a successor. So then if, if I were to pass away my wife gets my life insurance money, if we both pass away at the same time, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, roughly at the same time, there are rules for that. Right. But, um, they call it a simultaneous death in Virginia. If there's a simultaneous death, then, um, the trust would receive those life insurance monies, which is a, a large amount. And then the trust can take care of the children at that point. So a will to answer your question, doesn't have those options. So, um, in a will situation, you may ask, okay, well, if I don't have a trust, my children walk into, or my child walks into a million dollars in life estate or in uh, life insurance money. It's basically held in, um, in a, uh, it'd be a UTMA account, UTMA account in Virginia, I believe. Um, and it's basically held in an account until the child becomes 18. Once they are 18, they get all that money. So so let's say it's a 17 year old and they're walking in uh, next year into a million dollars. I mean, it's theirs. (laughs) That's not, that's going to be burned through pretty quick. Not, not the worst thing in the world. I mean, but you, you, as a, as a, uh, as a parent uh, that cares about your children, you may say, no, I want them to earn, you know, the right to have access to this million dollars. So in a trust scenario, you can have different, um, uh, points to where they can access that money. So let's say, uh, all right, let's say they walk into a million dollars, your daughter, you say, Hey, um, she can use up to a hundred thousand dollars for undergrad. Plus, um, you know, she can receive $50,000 a year for living for room and board, things like that. Uh, you know, a 19 year old can live off 50 grand a, a year plus uh, school being paid for. So then you can say, all right, at 25, if she's completed her degree and is pursuing a master's degree or some type of other, um, you know, graduate degree, she gets another distribution of 200,000 at age 30, she gets another 250,000. And then at age 35, she would get the balance of the, of the million dollars. Oh my gosh. So some, that's, something of that. That's age. pretty cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. So would, let's say you, that's how the trust is set up. Let's say it's like cash flow and real estate. You just mm-hmm. do the same kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. like from, for instance, my plan would be like, okay, let's say I have a trust and that's pretty much like want it to be like the bank. Like yeah. this keeps rolling in yeah. and it rolls in itself and this continues to grow and grow and grow. Yep. And I, I'm uh, under the understanding is like you see NFL stars, like basketball players, like 70, 80% or even lottery winners mm. that make that much money. It's like, most of them blow it within the first yeah. three years. It's like, if, even if I'm not around and like to educate my daughter, let's say, mm-hmm. cause I'm, I'm like, I'm never used to be afraid of anything, but now I'm like terrified. Of, like, passing <laughs> are, you, are you Enneagram six? You know, Enneagram seven. Like Enneagram. <laughs> but, Enneagram six is a worried about everything. <laughs> uh, no, I used to be, a, I used to be never afraid of anything, oh, but it's like, once you. I had a daughter, now I'm afraid uh, of just that one it, certain yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, I gotcha. So it's maybe I'm not around to really show her and educate her about money. Like what I've learned so far. Mm-hmm. And I want, don't want to like throw give her all this, really quick and her not really know how to, to even handle it. Yep. So would you just make it uh like even your trust, your LLC, it just like, Hey, certain ca- cash flow she gets every month mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. this gets reinvested in there. And I, I have another question. So let's say for instance, both you and your husband pass, or uh, you and your wife pass away um, that you make someone like in charge of that trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, could you like limit to that what that person can do 
for the trust and how does that work? Yeah, that's great. Uh, great question too. So the, the trustee would be the individual appointed to manage the trust. Cause there's a trustee and a beneficiary. That's right. So the beneficiaries are typically the children. Mm-hmm. Um, in a sit there, you know, you could have like a nonprofit be a beneficiary too. Those are, there's scenarios like that. Um, I had a scenario where, um, the individual only wanted to give their child, let's say 50% of their, their assets and they want to give the other 50% to whatever nonprofit. That's fine. That they, um, um <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So the, uh, so yeah, trustee is a fiduciary. So in the financial world, in the legal world, we say fiduciary. So their main job is to manage the trust according to the terms of the trust. Okay. Um, and so, yes, you can limit what, uh, you can dictate however you want, you know, generally speaking of, of the funds that the beneficiaries would get when they would get them. Um, if the, if the trustee should invest it, if the trustee should go find more real estate properties, you know, you want to be careful because not all trustees would have the savviness or the the yeah. knowledge to be able to go do that. But you could say, Hey, work with the, um, work with the sound, um, qualified financial advisor, invest the funds and mutual funds, et cetera, et cetera. So you can be super specific or you could say, Hey, work with this realtor. It's my lifelong realtor. I've worked with on all my investments, you know, um, invest up to a million dollars in, in more rental properties. I don't know. You could do that, you know? So, and again, that would be on the trustee and the, uh, it'd be on the trustee to, to manage that money properly. Um, and, uh, because it's, it's for the benefit of the beneficiaries. So if they mismanage it, mismanage it, there's a, there's a liability there for sure. So, yeah. so what about like a, from a legacy standpoint, let's say like you create your trust and you want this to grow from generations to generations. Right. Mm-hmm. And let's say that trustee, um, like let's say 30 years, that trust is still going and that trustee passes away. Do you have like someone for that? Mm-hmm. Or like, if you just want to create a lifelong uh, legacy for generations and generations, yep. like how would you really structure it? I've seen people that have like family offices mm-hmm. and everything. I always was mm-hmm. kind of curious, like how, because they run their own family offices like a, yeah. as a trust. How does that all work? Yeah, so you'd have successor trustees, and uh, that would be up to the trustee. If they're not named in the trust, that would be up to the, the the acting trustee. Let's say they're they're elderly. That would be up to them to say, yeah, I need to appoint a successor if there's not one listed. So that would be something they would need to do. Um, you know, maybe there's another attorney that would uh, – generally, trustees are either attorneys, a family member, or um, – what they call like a corporate trustee, which would be like town bank or some other bank like that. They have corporate trustees. Um, And so if, if you just said, Hey, I want town bank or I want hanger law to be my trustee, then it'd be on us to just continue as new attorneys come in or younger attorneys. So something like that, or we could say, Hey, hanger law. um, And we've, we're trustees on some trusts. We would say, if we're unable to do it anymore, we would appoint someone else like town bank or something like that. Um, and I only say town because we, we bank with town and I like them, but, um, other banks have, uh, trustee departments. Um, what was the second part of your question? Oh, so yeah, there, there are certain rules and I'm not going to get into it with, um, with trusts and various things going in what we call perpetuity, which just means forever. Um, so there are some, some laws to, to prevent that because things can get complicated, but yes, generally speaking, um, you know, you could set up endowments, you could set up other types of, um, you know, rental properties and things to where, uh, or investments to where you just have money coming in for a long time. Uh, you know, nonprofits are, are ways to do that too. So, yeah. Okay. One question that uh, it's kind of relates to what I'm exactly doing. Uh, so 
are you familiar with like subject to existing mortgages mm-hmm. and like how people buy, can buy them with like LLCs. Sometimes yep. people do a land trust. Mm-hmm. Um, why would someone use, uh, I always heard like a use the LLC on the short, short term and use a land trust on the long term. What's the legal aspect of that to like, hmm. um, I would think in my view, they're kind of the same thing. Yeah. Um, it's very, they're very similar. So I don't know the exact reason someone would say that. Um, there may be some other implications I'm not thinking of. But I think it's more like an asset protection, like LLCs can technically protect you a lot better than yeah, a, a la, land, land trust. Land trusts don't really offer liability protection. That's a great point. LLCs offer more of the liability protection. Land trusts create, in my opinion, they create some anonymity. So if someone, if there's a big investor in the area that they just, they don't want their name associated with anything or their LLC, um, creating the land trust can create some more anonymity for them to where, you know, people just don't know. Um, so I, I do know a couple of investors that do that. Um, cause the LLC, you can look, you can track someone down via yeah. the SCC website. So yeah, lo- long-term, short-term, I'm not sure other than the anonymity aspect. Um, but for liability, I would just say, yeah, just do it through the LLC. So for like a land trust and even a trust in general, if you have your trust own, because one of my thing, things is like getting in real estate, you can find anyone. Yeah. If anyone's information, know exactly where they live, where exactly. they are. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> I don't like that. And it, including like everyone sends out SMS and stuff like that. It's like, oh, how'd you find my information? I'll say, honestly, it's like yeah, out it's there. Everyone knows, which, which I mean, I'm from a lot of people they don't like, including myself. But if you have it in a land trust, they don't know. Yeah. And, but if you have it like in put all your assets in the trust and you don't have Mark Stevenson's trust as the name mm-hmm. of the trust, can no one would really know who owns that, that Co- property. Correct. So, so yes, you, so if I purchase my home and in my trust and people do that, um, yeah, that doesn't offer liability protection because you can kind of pierce through the, the trust for that, but it does offer some anonymity. You know, I can name it, whatever the, the MLS, that's my initials, but you know, MLS revocable living trust. (laughs) And, and yeah, so, and so, so yeah, on its face, um, on a deed, like you would just see MLS revocable living trust. And unless that trust was recorded, which typically they're not, then, um, yeah, that creates the anonymity. Okay. So like, say for your personal residence, I go put my, um, the, the deed in a trust, they won't be able to search Mark Stevenson. Well, they can if it's the because they can search the previous deed. Uh, so you have to do it when you purchase the home. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, like my my house right now is in my my name, so you can go find my house um, <laughs> if you want to, Tyler. Uh, but uh, so, but if I transferred it into my trust, that previous deed doesn't go away; it's still there in public records forever and ever. Uh, so gotcha. um, so yeah, you in when you want to purchase, if I purchase an investment property right now, I don't have any. Yeah, I'll probably purchase an LLC or in, in a trust for that reason. Um, and uh, because, yeah, trust isn't really registered with any entity. So it's it was more private. So people, they do subject to existing mortgages. They like land trust because they buy it, buy, buy the house, or they transfer the deed of ownership in the LLC. They're, they're, the, benef- they're the actual beneficiary, mm-hmm. and they're probably the trustee also. Right. So their reasoning is that the bank either doesn't know that it's a transfer of ownership. And I've heard like mainly just people online. It's like, Oh, that's definitely illegal. Or it's like, mm-hmm. so what's, 
that aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, basically, if there's a deed transfer, so you're probably referring to the uh, transfer clause uh, or the acceleration due on sale clause, yeah, due on sale clause and acceleration clause in the in the deed of trust. So I was just talking to uh, someone about this the other day. So generally speaking, banks don't care about that. But anytime there's a deed transfer, so if it's to LLC or to a trust, that violates the transfer on, on uh, sale clause unless it's a trust owned by the owners. So if I transfer to my trust, it, I own over 50% of the trust. And yeah. so the banks don't care about that. And same with the LLC, although uh, LLCs can be a little bit trickier with that. But, um, but yeah, generally if a trust, if you transfer to a trust, you're fine. Um, unless it's, unless again, it's a, uh, a land trust owned by somebody else or an LLC owned by somebody else. That's yes. Technically that violates the due on sale clause. If the individuals continue to pay their mortgage, you know, a, a lender is not going to call that. Yeah. Now if it's a commercial scenario, like a, a commercial building or something of that nature, a commercial note, that's a different beast. I'm talking. Cause they have than, terms and they, they're going to yes. see it. They're the more strict. So, um, in a general residential situation, yes, the, the, the individuals taking over the subject to should be aware of that. And we have forms that we say, Hey, you, you acknowledge this could violate the transfer on sale clause. Um, have you ever had anyone's get called or always ask this question? I think so there was one scenario where the lender was getting frustrated or the, or the lender wouldn't accept payments from the third party. So that was kind of problematic. I think it was Wells Fargo. And, um, they were rejecting the mortgage payments because it wasn't coming from the borrower. So something to watch out for. Um, I don't. So what they just get the, the buyers uh, or I guess the seller's original username and passwords. Yeah. <laughs> just go through that. Potentially. Or? Yeah. So I, I didn't get involved in that because I wasn't really representing both sides. I just did the settlement for that. Um, but yeah, that was a scenario where, yeah, the, yeah. Paying through the seller's account, you know, if it's Wells Fargo, whatever bank, they all have online accounts now. Um, that could be a solution to that. Um, but again, I, I wasn't really involved in that, so I don't, don't know how, it, uh, how it got resolved, but, um, I have heard of that banks rejecting payments and, uh, which you would think they would just take the money, but they have their reasons. Um, yeah. What was the other question to that? I think it was, it was mainly that. Cause I was just, cause you like me and a bunch of other people, obviously, if I can buy a, a house and take it subject to the two percent, mm-hmm. obviously that's a game changer because that would never happen, to, uh, mm-hmm. never happen again. So I feel like that's free money. Sure. So that's why yeah. everyone's trying to learn about that stuff. And there's a lot of risk and a lot of fear associated with that. And that is one yeah. of the main fears. Just like, hey, if I buy this, man, I'm getting like 30 40 percent return. They call that thing. I'm at a negative. 40% return. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So you want to have an out, you know, you want to have, you want to have your ducks in a row. Um, maybe you sell it, you know, maybe turn around and just sell it. Maybe you were going to hold it as a rental. Mm-hmm. Um, but then if they do call the no, you could sell it at that point. You know, that could be an option, which again, I haven't really heard happening. Now there's also assumptions that are, are starting to be talked about more. Um, that's if, if you actually assume the person's mortgage and you, you purchase the property is a little bit different from a subject to, uh, to where you, you assume their mortgage, you, you, the, the seller's bank essentially approves you to take over and take on that loan. Um, so that's safer in my opinion, safer than a subject to, because you're taking title and you're taking over the loan, um, more paperwork involved in that. And they're, yeah. they're pretty, it takes a long time too. It takes a long time. And we've, my office has worked on a few and I just wanted to dispel the myth that, um, 
they're very complicated and they're not easy. So <laughs> anyone that thinks like, oh, I'm going to just do this assumption and get it closed in 30 days is probably not going to happen. And investors typically can't do that because they Correct. like they want it, they have to meet the cert qualification. You have yeah. to live in it, which is very, I think, inconvenient. Yeah, but, Gen- um, generally, exactly, primary resident. Yeah, yeah, type thing. So you mentioned, I know I'm taking up a lot of your time, and um, one thing I really want to talk about is like property management when it comes mm-hmm. to stuff. Okay. Because obviously, there's always lawsuits, um, squatters, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So <laughs> once the the legal aspect, let's say, like for an eviction, um and you'll have to get involved and go to court. What's that process? Look yeah. Like? So, um, that's another big fear of every landlord. Yeah. Thing, I don't right? want to butcher this, uh, but there, there is a, so Virginia and most States now are, are pretty, um, the laws are kind of there to protect the tenants, you know, sorry to all of the, uh, yeah. investors and landlords out there, but, um, and Virginia is pretty fair on both sides, but, especially since COVID there, there have been, there's been a leaning towards protecting tenants a little bit more. So what does that mean? That means that your ducks have to be in a row as a, as a landlord and you, you, you need to have your leases tight. You need to have your paperwork tight. You need to have your, your notices tight. And what I mean by that is as soon as the, you're not receiving rent from a tenant, you, you need to send notice in, in a quick proper time. I, I'm not going to go through all the, the days and, and um, timeframes with that because it's a little too complicated, but I will put a plug in for our firm because we handle a lot of that. And we've been very, very successful in, in properly um, representing landlords in those situations and making sure because because time is money. Right. And so oh, yeah. we, we want to make sure and we'll work with landlords to make sure your, your leases are tight. Your notices are tight. You're getting notices to the, the tenant as soon as possible on that first day, because if you miss that first day or two, uh, things can get delayed a month or maybe even two months and then you're losing rent money. So um so that's super important to have those those ducks in a row uh, to make sure you get that tenant out and a new tenant in there as quickly as possible. Because there's it, it, it doesn't work like TV to where, you know, you just, oh, they don't pay on day two. You show up in court and then they're out of there day three. Like, no, it doesn't work like that. There, there's a process that courts afford them time to make their payment, to catch up payment. Um, and then even, you know, before there's an actual eviction to get them out of there, um, there's a, there's a time period. So you're, you're already kind of losing money just by a tenant not paying. Yeah. We want to help you get it done as quickly as possible. I got you. So I got the, so I always try to help my friends out with like some of their scenarios. And I know this guy, um, <laughs> he's the older, older guy, but so he was dating this girl for, this is going to be a, this is, I, this is the craziest scenario I've heard. <laughs> so he's a, he's lived with this girl for two years or so maybe like a year and a half, but, uh, but he's tried to like they broke up. He's been trying to get her out of her ha- his house for like a year or so, oh, yeah. right. and she still gets paperwork sent there. Like she doesn't have a job or anything. She doesn't do anything, um, and he can't get her out. She's mm-hmm. like refuses to leave. But uh, they, they're waiting because she still get, receives mail there. She doesn't um, pay any rent, but he can't get her to leave. And also, she is waiting for like a new placement for like um, a section, a section eight okay. place. Okay. So what would his, like what he should do to like help get, uh, get <laughs> um, his house out. Cause he's basically that just destroys his house. He can't get, he can't do yeah, that. Yeah. That'd be that, what we call it in Virginia is called an unlawful detainer. Um, and so it's an eviction action. Yeah. He needs to file a most likely an unlawful detainer against her, even though she's, he's living there, right? Like she's living with him. So, 
he's basically trying to evict someone out of his house yeah. legally. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that would be the, that would be the action. Cause he's called like the sheriffs and they try to uh, get there, but because I guess, cause of COVID or something, he can't get, her, uh, get her out cause she's got nowhere to go or, and they're waiting for yeah. like this certain <laughs> that's, list. <laughs> that's a complicated scenario, but oh yeah. You know, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, the sheriffs can't, I mean, I guess a trespassing scenario, but it's like she's lived there for so long. It's not, she's not really trespassing because she was allowed to be there yeah. at first. Um, so it's, it's kind of a trespassing, but even with trespass, I mean, there's, there's certain procedures you have to go through. So yeah, it would be an unlawful detainer situation. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> you told me that scenario. I was like, I've, I've heard of that scenario many, many times. Yeah. yeah Cause that's my, one of my all, like kind of fears for like, as let's say you have an Airbnb and a squatter refuses to leave. Well, then you yeah. have the eviction process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. even worse. Yeah. So what's the worst scenario? I, I know you probably like a client. Um, like yeah. yeah, client privilege. You can't say anything, but you can use fake names or anything like that. What's sure. a certain uh, scenario that you thought was extreme and how did y'all like kind of overcome that? Oh gosh. Um, like from a landlord tenant perspective or it could short be, sale perspective, it can or? be a landlord tenant or a short sale, just anything that comes um, to the top of your head. I'm going to have a bunch of short sale stories. I just don't know if they're applicable to, you know, investing or anything like that. I mean, I think from a general, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of talk about this and, and tie it in with money and investment. Um, as a homeowner, and so, so let me start with this. I had a short sale situation where the individual, and you've probably heard of this, they, they had a, um, they got a new HVAC unit and a, or a new roof or whatever. And, and nowadays you can finance those. Yeah. So solar panels are a big oh, hot, yeah. hot thing right now. So, and I'll, I have a, a story with solar panels too. So anyway, this short sale scenario, um, this individual, I think they had financed their HVAC. Let's just say it was whatever, 10 grand, doesn't matter. And well, they forgot about it. They were making payments to it, but they, they didn't realize there was a lien on the property. So we went to go do the short sale and, and we don't do title. So full disclosure, we don't do title searches on short sales unless there's some reason we think we should do a a title search one, because they cost money and we don't want to pass that cost on to the seller. Cause a lot of times they're, you know, they were out of jobs. Yeah. So they're already going through hardship. Yeah. So we're not going to say, Hey, we need another 300 bucks to do a title search on the property unless we think there's a reason to do so. And then maybe we split that or the realtor pays it. The buyer would want to do that. The buyer would do that. So that's what happened in this scenario is we were going through the short sale process and the buyer does their title search. And, you know, we get it a few weeks before closing, which is standard. And all what comes up is this lien for the HVAC. Ten ten thousand dollars or whatever it is. It's probably let's say it's eight thousand at the time because they had paid it down. So they're they're obviously distraught because they didn't know there was a lien on the property, even though they probably should have. But I I can kind of get it, right? Like you're just making payments. <laughs> they probably knew. <laughs> oh, well, where did that? How did that get yeah. here? <laughs> so all that is, all that is exactly. So all that to say is, thankfully they knew they knew they were making payments on their HVAC. Um, but it's called a, a UCC one and it's, it's a, it's a lien for, you know, for roofs or for HVACs or water softeners or a big thing. So, um, it's a special filing called a UCC one financing statement to where, um, it's a lien on the property and they have a pretty high, uh, priority. So, um, all that to say is they ended up having to borrow money, I think from a family member 
to pay the balance of this off because the lender was like, oh, we're not paying for that. Like that was, that was something y'all did. And so Wells Fargo got their money or whoever the bank was. Uh, but you know, the last like week or so before closing, they're scrambling around. They're already in a pretty bad situation. They're moving. They don't have any money and they're borrowing money from family members to, to pay off this uh, debt of $8,000 oh, wow. just to get the household. I mean, you know, yeah, they were just trying to get rid of this house. Um, so that was one scenario. And, and then another scenario with the solar panel, same thing. Uh, these individuals solar were, panels don't transfer. Usually the, the, so I always heard yeah. that's been a nightmare. Yeah. So it's like, Oh, you got $20,000. Well, I ain't paying for that. They're expensive. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, I caution to realtors and to owners, you know, negotiate that in a contract. If there's solar panels on there and there's $20,000 left on the payments, like I would negotiate that, you know, especially in this market. Um, cause the mortgage, the, the loan doesn't transfer. No, it has to be paid off. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I've seen sellers eat very, very large chunks of money for solar panels because a, they either didn't negotiate it or they forgot about it or they did they negotiate know. it, but improperly in my opinion. So that, that's a caution. But all that to say is I would just caution folks, you know, as homeowners, you, you know, know what you're signing, know what you're agreeing to. Um, if you're getting solar panels or new HVAC or a new roof, you know, something that's a big ticket item and you're financing it, you know, ask them like, Hey, is this going to be a lien on the property? Read through the paperwork, hire an attorney. You know, you can pay our office, let's say 300 bucks to read the contract for you and tell you worth it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that you're going to have a $10,000 <laughs> lien on your property or, yeah. or Hey, these solar panels were 30 or 30 grand. It's going to be a lien. And are you planning to sell your house in the next five years or 10 years before you pay it off? Yeah. You know, so those are all questions that, um, people just don't think about may or maybe they think it's going to be forever home and, and they're like, no, yeah, we're going to live here for 20 years and pay the solar panels off. But in reality, they're in the military and they're probably they get move. orders somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. So just things to think about as, as homeowners, you know, protecting your investment, protecting the equity in your home, uh, of being, being knowledgeable of what you're signing and, uh, you know, all that. Okay. So kind of hanger law specific y'all do, it sounds like all things, real estate, uh, real estate attorney stuff. And then I saw like on your page, do y'all do like some kind of loans and stuff? Cause I thought, I thought I saw something. Okay. No, I mean, not, not like as lenders. Yeah. That's what you mean. Okay. I mean, we work with, we do a lot of loan type paperwork, you know, oh, okay. work with that must have been hard those. money lenders or commercial lenders. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. But we don't, as a firm, we don't loan any money out. So what, um, just to kind of wrap this up, what's kind of the common questions you get about, uh, as, like investors to attorneys that they usually ask you. Oh gosh. Um, People just starting out kind of like maybe don't know the right questions to ask or. I, I mean, the, the most common question is the LLC, you know, should I create an LLC? And um, like the one we talked about earlier, so I'm mm -hmm. not going to rehash all that of. And the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the multiple property thing, the liability thing, the due on sale clause we get asked about all the time. Uh, D transfers. What about LLCs? Let's say you have them in different states. So yeah. are y'all just Virginia or let's say for instance, Virginia, like yeah. they got uh, LLC in Virginia and you got one in North Carolina. Obviously you probably want to create a new one for the one in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. yep. How does, how does that work? I'm not coming in to say works the same aspect or. Yeah. yeah. So the, so I only know a little bit about North Carolina law, but um, you, yes, you can, most states you can, you can have, you can, so if you have a Virginia LLC, you can file a kind of like a reciprocal LLC in another state. And so you're basically like doing business as that same LLC, but you're actually registered in North Carolina. 
So mm-hmm. it just it just means you're legally doing business there. But yeah, you oh, can okay. have the same name. If the name's taken, you have to use a different name. But um, uh, I have a client that's out of state, and he registered his what we call foreign LLC in Virginia, his same name, and it's basically saying, hey, it's a whatever, it's a Tennessee LLC, but he's doing business in Virginia. And that's the legal way to do it. Um, And then when you sell, so in Virginia, it's kind of a caveat to that. You can buy property in any name and any entity if it's not, even if it's not registered. But when you sell it, you need to have that LLC registered. So you can buy it with like a Tennessee LLC, but when you sell it, you need to be registered in Virginia, if if that makes sense. Yeah. um, Just I'm trying to get uh, maximize our time. Um, so LLCs can be like a sole proprietor. It could be an S corp. It can be a C corp. Mm-hmm. When's the best way to do? Those are all tax questions. So, um, oh, okay. <laughs> so the LLC kind of technically doesn't change. Yeah, the, the LLC doesn't change tax liability is more for, um, liability protection for, um, personal liability. Oh, okay. So yeah, uh, the S corp scenario, those are all tax questions, which, I know a little bit. I know enough to be dangerous, but yeah, <laughs> prefer, prefer not to get into <laughs> I got you. Yeah, I got you. So, like, basically, is that, like, let's say, for instance, you put, have a business LLC and you can work with your tax professional yeah. on whether or not you want to do an S Corp, C Corp, and yeah. all that stuff. But talk to them, especially if it's a solo member, a member yeah. like solo managed. If you start to have multiple partners and members and managers, you definitely want to talk to a CPA or a tax professional about that. Um, because then you have different people getting a cut and various things like that. If it's a, if it's an individual, you, you know, your own LLC, my own LLC, it's easy at that point. We talked, talked about that's passed through. Yeah. Um, but if it's multiple folks, yeah, it becomes more of a, what I call a taxable moment. So a lot of people like, like syndications and funds, but let's say they, it's something so small and it's just like one or two investors, like they create an LLC, right? Mm-hmm. Um, can you, on your operating agreement, distribute like, Hey, how everyone's going to get paid. Mm-hmm. Let's say like, for instance, like, uh, let's say you as the LLC leader, I want 51%. Right. And then the other 49%, um, one other investor owns and they're putting the money toward the deal. Can you make it like determine like financing of how things get paid, how this person gets tax benefits, yep. how this person gets everything like that. You just, yeah. it's all, an all operating, that stuff. Op- yeah, oper- uh, so LLCs of operating agreements, corporations have bylaws, um, or corporate docs. So yeah, you want to specify that in the operating agreement and, uh, you know, the 51% holder would be the managing, you know, um, uh, they don't really have shares, but managing shareholder. Um, and, uh, but yeah, you could determine who gets paid and percentages yeah. and you could have people that have authority and don't get paid or people that, you know, don't have authority and do get paid. So yeah, you can separate all that out. So I know a lot of like syndicators, obviously they don't want to get the big legal paperwork, paperwork of like 20 some thousand dollars. So they just create like an LLC and they do like, let's say they do a 20, 80% split and they make it the, the managing partners. They're the managers, the 20%. And for them to sell or anything, the property they have like, Oh, well you need, um, 81% majority to sell or do anything like that. So they can mm-hmm. still control the asset mm-hmm. from a legal aspect. Can, isn't where that those majority holders can still take over ownership le- legal wise or like, or anything like that? Or? Um, don't know. Honestly, don't know. Tyler. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of a complex scenario. Um, I get all these crazy yeah. questions. <laughs> I'm always curious. I don't know. If I'm in. They're, with LLCs, they're very, very flexible. So that's the only thing I'll say. Yeah. So, 
you can essentially kind of come up with any scenario you want. And then you can have different classes of ownership or, or, you know, stock ownership. So yeah, that's something to where you could have a class A, class B, class C and different levels. So yeah, they're very customizable. That's kind of the only answer. Okay. I know how to answer that. So I always heard like even LLC is just like a paperwork game. So let's say you and your friend want to go flip a couple houses. You flip a couple houses and let's say you're done with the LLC. Can you just, do you just have to just let it die out and just not pay your fees? Or? Yeah, you can terminate it. Yeah, you, can you, just, you have to actually go through termination. Like, hey, we want to terminate this. Or? That's the cleanest way to do it. You can just not pay your fees, but it that kind of looks sloppy. Um, you know, kind of going back to the piercing the corporate veil thing. Yeah. So I would say, yeah, if you're if you're only going to use it for this one flip or this one house, yeah, just file the termination paperwork, kind of close it up. Then you won't get billed next year for dues, even though again you cannot pay them. Um, but uh, it's just cleaner to. Yeah, so I, I know we answered that at the beginning. Where do you actually go to like? put in your um, registered agent or your 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 location where do you exactly uh, go to the do virginia that? sec website oh, okay so, so yeah, this is pretty like yeah because when you file you get your sec or get your llc you file put that name in there mm -hmm. and you get an ein number from that or Not, the eins to the irs okay but um yeah when you file with the sec you'd create your virginia llc name and then you can put the registered agent info in there um you can uh uh, yeah, and it has your start date. And um, is that something y'all do for the individual? Or? Yeah, we'll handle all that in the formation. Yep. Okay. Yep. But what? Where do y'all usually take a step back, or is like okay, it's just determine some like price on how much we take uh, everything? I guess right. So yeah, so we have like a, a package for uh, LLC formation. So we'll we'll meet with you or the client and say, hey, we have basic questions we ask. What are you going to use it for? You know, who are the going to be the members, the manager, et cetera. And we'll kind of go through our checklist and, and get the documents set up in a, in a scenario, a basic scenario, right? We have, you know, kind of templated documents for that, but then they're more complicated scenarios. Like, Hey, you want to go in, in business with your brother-in-law and we're going to do this and that, and he's going to manage the project. And, and uh, you know, he's going to do a lot of the, the work and put sweat equity in that happens a lot. You know, you have, you have someone that's like kind of managing the work and then you have someone that's kind of managing the money. Um, and uh, you know, so we can build that into the LLC. So, that would be just a, a situation where we'd work with you on customizing how you want your docs drafted. So just a final question before we wrap everything up. Um, when you do your LLC, does it matter like what specific names you do? Like I know some people that do, oh, I got to come up with this cool LLC business name or say like, like let's say you buy a house on uh, Mills Landing, on Mills Landing LLC. Does, yeah. it, does it matter or just, just something yeah. that helps you identify where yeah. those properties are? Yeah, we have a lot of people that, we have some clients that do the naming uh, scheme because it helps them keep track. Yeah, because if you're just like, because you have tons of them and you got all these different names, <laughs> like, oh my goodness. Yeah, if you're like Tyler Win, uh, uh, one, you know, Tyler Win two, Tyler Win, then you, yeah, you just lose track of all. Yeah, that. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> so that yeah, you you can be systematic about it and and it can help you in your CPA. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> right, um, where can people find more about y'all's company and yeah. yourself personally? So uh, hangerlaw.com, you mentioned our website. We try to keep it updated uh, with practice areas and, and attorneys that are on our list. My email address is, is super easy, mark, M-A-R-K, at hangerlaw.com. You can email me. I'll try to respond to you as quickly as possible and uh, or, or phone call. I, I am in and out of the office a lot, so I don't get my phone a lot, but um, our office number is uh, 757-351-1510. And, um, yeah, happy to, like I said, answer any questions or, yeah. or get you to the right attorney. I don't do a lot of practicing myself. 
um, I am involved in real estate a little bit. Because you run the whole yeah, business I, I run the, run the day-to-day uh, operations, so it's hard to do both. Yeah. And uh, But we have highly competent, great attorneys that do truly care about the people that they work with, the clients, our referral partners. And um, I would I would send any of my stuff to any of the attorneys on our list. Because um, I have a yeah. deal that I have under contract right now, and I have a, uh, someone at Hanger Law yeah. taking taking care of it for me. So it's yes. been nice. Yeah. So absolutely. So any of our folks, I will. I have personally vetted all of them, and we've they've gone through extensive interview process to to work at our firm, and we we truly truly care about the people at our firm, not just the attorneys, but the, all the way down to the staff and to our reception team and to the people that answer the phone. I mean, we can yeah. have another podcast about about um, building culture and a high quality team. But oh, yeah. Um, we, uh, yeah, so I, I truly value all of our folks and, and the attorneys are, yeah, they're, they're not uh, specialists, right? I can't say they're specialists at their craft, <laughs> but uh, per Virginia law, but they're all, yeah, highly competent, highly mm-hmm. intelligent and, and just good people. So well, there you go. Well, I appreciate you coming on yeah, uh, the so. show. And just so everyone knows we're uh, we go live every week on, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Instagram, and most of the time TikTok, and we're, we're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And next week, we're actually going to dive into more real estate tax stuff. So I appreciate everyone that's coming on. I appreciate Mark yeah. for coming on and probably answering even if uh, y'all don't get value. I got a lot of value because <laughs> there's definitely a lot of stuff that people don't talk about and probably you should be talked about more about because you always hear online, say, oh, don't get an LLC unless you get a certain amount of this stuff. Well, it definitely opened my eyes on like when you should do that stuff. So that's definitely, definitely good. So I appreciate Great. you coming on Absolutely. and Great sharing your knowledge. It's been amazing. Yeah. Thanks, Tom.